No, thank you very much. Uh, you know, the last service had to be translated. And I've got 40 minutes of notes here. So I had to cut out a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, by the way, if anybody's interested in any of my master's degrees, I'm selling them on eBay. <laughs> I've got to make some money off of them, seeing over the years I haven't made much money off of any of the degrees. But uh, talk to me afterwards, we can work out a deal. Okay? Privileged to be here. It's a joy to return and speak to this congregation after several years. You already know that I was academic dean for two years and helped them to get their accreditation through Union University of California. By the way, I'm extremely privileged to have one of my PhD students sitting in the back there from the Philippines. And June, who's Gigi's husband, was the president of the Nazarene Bible College in Cebu in the Philippines when I taught there. And furthermore, their son is also here, who was my student back in the Philippines. Just an inside piece of information. As Gigi was studying her PhD, she suffered a tremendous stroke and it paralyzed her. And so she's been in a long recovery process, but has re-entered the program again with tremendous courage. And so I look at her and she's one of my heroes because she would not let even a physical impairment stop her for the goals that she had in mind. And so that really means a lot to me that she's been able to come back. So yes, uh, in the 10 years since I was last preached in this church, my life has changed greatly. I'm now a permanent resident in the Philippines. I am planning to die there. It's a lot cheaper to die in the Philippines than it is in the USA. And by the way, the Philippines is the only country in the world where there's no divorce. So I am insured of keeping my wife for a long time. And she comes with three wonderful children, so I'm stepfather to these three children. And where is the PowerPoint? Is nobody working it back there? Come on, I want to show you a picture of my Filipino family. What happened? Nobody instructed you? Oh boy. All my notes are on PowerPoint. Let's close my benediction. <laughs> anyway, uh, I wrote this thing. <laughs> they told me I was to present to this congregation. I put together a PowerPoint that I thought was really cool. And then they turned around, no, that's not it, come on. <laughs> this was the one I originally prepared. And they told me, no, we don't want that one. 
we want the same one that you're using in the first service because it's talking about how to be a good neighbor or how to love your Buddhist family and friends. So I'm doing the same old sermon all over again. And if you want the notes, it's all written out like hand, uh, written out in uh, detailed word-for-word order. And we still don't have my picture of my family. I'm leaving tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock for South Korea and then to the Philippines. I've not seen my wife or my Filipino kids for 10 weeks. And so I want to see them. Where are they? You don't have the PowerPoint. Well, uh, let's meet again at 2 o'clock. Okay, so uh, it's already been mentioned that I head up the PhD program there. And we've got students from all over the world, and if you are interested, we charge $110 an academic unit, which is a lot cheaper than some of you guys are paying around here, right? And it is a full-fledged PhD qualified program, and uh, we do it in three different areas, holistic child development, uh, transformational learning, and transformational development, which is community development, which is really an important issue in the Philippines when you've got so much poverty on every side. And so my current assignment has given me a, a great opportunity to travel throughout Asia in teaching missions in Myanmar, in Nepal, Sri Lanka, Thailand, South Korea, Cambodia, China, and much to my delight, several teaching missions in Vietnam. I've thoroughly enjoyed the vivacious life on the streets of Saigon, or do I say Ho Chi Minh? I'm never quite sure which. The graceful parks and the lakes of Hanoi, the beautiful bridges and beaches of Da Nang, and I've been amazed at the thousands of motorcycles that come at you from every direction, almost like a horde of mosquitoes descending on you. Somehow they negotiate peacefully crossing those intersections back and forth in crowded uh, circumstances. But most of all, I've enjoyed the people who whether it be an international church or a Vietnamese congregation or a Buddhist temple, I've been greeted by warmth and joy. Much of my travels throughout Asia have been plotted by a former Buddhist priest. His name is Pia Ratna of Nepal, who though remaining Buddhist, I keep working on him to make a Christian out of him. And he acts so much better than most Christians, but he's still a Buddhist. Uh, I've found my message to be su sufficiently compelling that he has arranged for me to speak in all kinds of interfaith gatherings. By the way, I've been funded by Mustard Seed Foundation to teach theology of work and business ethics, which gets me to all kinds of places that most missionaries cannot go because it do doesn't sound theological. You understand? And everybody's interested in the meaning of work and corruption within their nations. 
of special assignment was my invitation to give seminars in the Buddhist convent in Lumbini. Get the pronunciation right next time, okay? Lumbini in Nepal. Okay. And uh, right on the grounds of the park where it is believed that Siddhartha Gautama was born. I've attended with respect his actual birthplace, which is uh, located in a large German-built museum. And so you walk up to this hole in the wall and they say, that's where his mother birthed him. Poor mother. And I did so on his noted birthday and observed 100,000 candles being lit all around the monuments and the mirror pool just outside of the museum. It was an amazing sight as the thousands of pilgrims from all over the world gathered. Furthermore, I was asked to address the faculty at the Lumbini Buddhist University, where we offered a lecture followed by questions and answers. What a privilege to be at the very heart of Buddhism and welcomed and have an audience. In Nepal, I was surprised at the realization that many of my students were both Hindu and Buddhist. Now, if you're Hindu, you believe in millions of gods. If you're Buddhist, there is no God. It's an atheistic religion. So you're hedging your bets on one side or the other. You might as well be both. Okay? Most Hindu temples also have a Buddhist stupa or an altar where worshipers could hold in tension a religion that believes in many gods alongside a Buddhist religion where no gods are acknowledged. Even the Buddha himself disavowed any role as God, but rather was acknowledged as the enlightened one. So my first point is, there you see it, imagine it on my PowerPoint. Be a friend to Buddhists. Repeat after me. Be a friend to Buddhists. My second point is, be listening carefully to Buddhists. There, you read it? Be listening carefully to Buddhists. And so I visited many Buddhist sites, talked with many believers, and found them to be very open to dialogue. I found them not only open to learning, but learning about the religious worlds outside of their own. I do not claim to be a deeply insightful Buddhist theologian. In fact, I think there are very few of them in the world because ultimately, all theologies become the chant of Aum. I am a Christian who believes that my mission is very similar to that of Abraham. What was his mission? To be a blessing to all the nations. Having traveled to 120 countries, more than 120 countries, having taught formally in over 60 of them, I would be most arrogant to believe that it was my mission to convert others to my faith. If people are converted, it's not because I did it, but it's because of the call of the Holy Spirit. 
Rather, I believe the scripture that we read earlier, that there is a light that lights every man, every person, and that the great religions of the world are the response to the big questions of life. Question number one, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? That in these great religions arose people with uncanny insight who provided partial answers and offered rituals to try to find meaning in our existence. I see the Buddhist and I see Confucius and Lao Tzu as early spokespersons that got their generation thinking in substantive directions and meaningful gestures to calm troubled spirits, provide some order to their social existence. Panel number three, read it there. To be a blessing to Buddhists. Repeat after me. To be a blessing to Buddhists. I'm not afraid of dialogue with those who offer precious insights that expand me. St. Augustine said, every meeting is a divine encounter. Every meeting is an exchange of gifts. By the way, after the service, I have about only seven or eight copies of my book called Divine Encounters, which is 108 stories of divine encounters that I've had with people under very unusual circumstances. And so uh, uh, any money that's given or paid for uh, ultimately goes into our PhD program. And so every meeting is a divine encounter. That changed my spirit. I didn't see people as being offensive or intrusive. I now try to look at people as being divine encounters. Every meeting is an exchange of gifts. So my fourth panel up here is, be aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your encounter. In other words, when you come together with somebody else, there's an unseen presence that brought you together and is trying to work something out of that arrangement. We call it the Holy Spirit. Repeat after me. Be aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your encounter. Of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your encounter. And so when I enter into conversation with others, I believe that there's also the presence of another, the Holy Spirit, who brings us together, fires our thoughts, our imaginations, and our feelings. And I see the other person as a gift to me, to expand me, to help me grow. The fifth observation, be willing to learn and grow from your Buddhist friends. There it is. Read it carefully. Be willing to learn and grow from your Buddhist friends. Again, be willing to learn and grow from your Buddhist friends. So many of our relationships are transactional. Pastor, could you come up here, please? I'm not going to scold you. So, I scratch your back. 
Your turn to scratch mine. Ah, ah, just keep going. We're in no hurry. Thank you. Okay. But the fact is, my scratching his back, his scratching my back, nothing changes. It's what we call transactional relationships. I believe that my God calls me into transformational relationships that make both of us grow in wisdom and in deeper relationship until we both become better people for having entered into conversation. Look at the possibilities of transformational relationships. Uh, my next point, be perceptive with Buddhists. Repeat after me. First, I have to admit that there are many cultural Buddhists who call themselves Buddhists, but really have little insight as to why they believe what they believe. They inherited their religion and feel a certain cultural commitment to it, but it does not radically change them or offer the promises uh, because of their religion. And so I move on to my next principle. Be honest about the failures of the Christian witness. The fact is the outsiders, those coming to the United States, have such a high opinion of what America is as a Christian nation and how easily disillusioned they become when they see that the vast majority of people do not take Christianity seriously and those that do oftentimes find themselves locked into political issues or social issues that unfortunately mischaracterize the spirit of the gospel. The same is true of cultural Christians and America is full of them. They wear the Christian label, but they don't know the source of what their Christianity is. Then there are the ritual Buddhists who offer their alms. They place their daily meal out as an offering. They rotate their prayer wheels. They repeat their mantras. They do their meditations. This is like some Christians who participate thoughtlessly in Holy Communion. They give their tithes and offerings to seek some extraordinary blessing. They sing themselves hoarse, hoping for some out-of-the-body experience. And then there's another group, philosophical Buddhists. I recently read one book entitled, What Makes You Not a Buddhist? Written by Tibetan Buddhist Lama, who argues that true Buddhism is hinged on four core beliefs. Not on beads or incense or exotic robes. If you're not captured by these four truths, you cannot claim to be Buddhist. If he's right, most of the Buddhists are not Buddhists at all. Again, this is a lot like Christians who will argue about the tenets of Christianity, determining who are the real Christians. Ah, this side over here, you guys are real Christians. You're fake Christians. You understand? And so we divide up depending upon our preferred texts that determine who, whether or not we're legitimate. Uh, 
And so we struggle with our own preferred scripture texts, dogmatically decide that some are more important than others, that other people over there might claim. Then there are the Buddhists whose whole lives are configured around the principles and the powers of Buddhism. Many of them become monks and nuns, step aside from worldly pursuits to find the peace and the tranquility that is promised in their religion. These hope to finally attain the state of enlightenment so desired. Likewise, it is with many Christians. They seek holiness in a state of sanctification that avoids sinful practices, sinful spirits, and they press on to Christian, uh, Christ-likeness. And heaven and the holy city of the new Jerusalem, they see as their final destination. These are the serious Christians who try to see all of life as sacred and accountable to God. As I go around Buddhist nations, I am kind of nervous because everywhere I see the eyes painted. You know what I'm talking about? Buddhist eyes. And I imagine they're the eyes of God for watching everything that I do because I am accountable to God 24-7. Throughout Buddhist Asia, I'm reminded that the eyes posted generously may be the eyes of God, watching all that we do in a moment-by-moment accountability. Panel number eight is 14 altogether. Be appreciative of the good that's in Buddhism. After listening to Buddhists, I often... I'm often asked what I like about Buddhism. Let me offer some personal observations. First, I appreciate the openness of Buddhists to engage me in conversations. I don't find them nearly as threatened as I do in other religions. I don't find the defensiveness or the hostility that I see in some groups to the mere fact that I am a Christian. Second, For many Buddhists, their faith is less an argument about doctrine than it is a way and practice of living. The fact that there is no consensus God takes away the harsh judgment characteristic of a feisty deity that must be defended. Third, I appreciate the message of the extinguishing of desire, especially in a world in which conspicuous consumption and the constant drumbeat of advertising that constantly tells us that we must have more and more and more. I'm especially attracted to the Bhutanese happiness quotient. You're aware that they measure everything according to a scale of happiness, which is very different to national gross index that counts the number of toilets you have or the cost of your house to measure social progress. I like the idea of a national happiness quotient. Fourth, I admire greatly the Buddhist appreciation and respect for nature. Their temples are magnificent. By the way, if you travel into downtown Los Angeles, it's a weary place. 
poverty all around. It's become kind of a slum world. Except when you go to the Buddhist temples. Manicured, cleanly put together, lawns, flowers, impeccable buildings, complete contrast to the world around it. Very interesting. Their temples are magnificent, their landscaping impeccable. It all reminds me of the chapter that we read earlier today, but we didn't read it today. I sent it to, to you, but you didn't want to read it apparently. That the earth is the Lord's. Psalm chapter 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I think the Buddhists could say that and say amen. God loves beauty and wants to be honored by both not only our productivity, but also our stewardship. Buddhists intuitively seem to retain such value and treat nature with both tenderness and with taste. Number five, I resonate with the Buddhist focus on suffering as a universal blight across all of human life. There's a deep honesty that acknowledges such suffering. It doesn't minimize it. It doesn't deny it. Their understanding is that suffering is caused by desire, which is quite different from the Christian concept that sees much suffering as a consequence of sin. Yes, suffering is real, must be dealt with, and the Four Noble Truths outline the existence of suffering, describing its cause, the end of suffering, the path to bring suffering to an end. Number six, there's much about Buddhist's eightfold path that I can appreciate. And so it's rather specific. They talk about a right view, a right intention, a right speech, right action, right liveliness, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Indeed, so many of us live in a world of sloppiness, of behavior, of intent, of focus, and of sloppy morality, that we lose sight of the very ingredients that make up a livable and healthy society and personal lifestyle. Seventh, I admire the Buddhist respect for authority, especially as seen in their honor and respect for parents and the elderly, and even those that have passed on. Now that I'm in that age category, frankly, my appreciation for this Buddhist characteristic continues to grow. Panel number nine, be courageous in asking important questions. Repeat after me. Be courageous in asking important questions. I could have mentioned other expressions worthy of study and reflection. For instance, the Buddhist's insights into peace, wonder, and simplicity. By the way, I think Christianity in the West has nailed down so many things we no longer have wonder. In fact, maybe we go to the scientists who wonder about the universe, who wonder about 
the inner core of the earth, who wonder about the origins of human life. But Christianity, we've tended to answer all of those questions, and we've lost a sense of wonder and awe. I think the Buddhists can teach us something in that area. How can we get back to this wonderful state of wondering? I think of the old Christmas song, I wonder as I wander out under the stars why Jesus, my Savior, came forth here to die. Panel number, no, I'm sorry. Here are some of the questions, and these are rather impertinent ones. You can make up some more, but I think... Uh, it might be healthy to try to create some questions that come out of your experience in talking to people who are Buddhists. One question I have is, who ultimately do you pray to? I've asked this question again and again, and I get shrugs, shoulders. There's no God out there. I asked one person, they said, well, we're praying to the Buddha, but the Buddha's dead. And then who are you praying to? To the Dalai Lama. Oh, the Dalai Lama's listening? They're very confused. They don't have answers. Because prayer is not so much seeking an end. Prayer is a meditative state on your own spirit. Second question. In the exercise of prayer wheels, how much do you have to spin to assure yourself of some response to your prayer? I bought a couple of prayer wheels in the past that I go around in the markets and I'm spinning my prayer wheel. If you understand, they have prepared prayers in the local language, which I cannot read, so I don't know what I'm praying anyway. But you spin it around and you spin it and spin it and spin it. And I say, how many times do I have to spin it to get answers to prayer? And somebody says, 70 times. Somebody else says, a thousand times. I don't know when to stop. If it's 70 times, if I do it 700 times, do I get 10 prayers answered? I'm not sure how to calculate all of this stuff. Okay? Or is it the act of spinning that constitutes the devotion? Another question I have, when all is said and done, are you able to completely extinguish all desire and does some desire always linger around? I had a strange experience here in Los Angeles. I used to live in Alhambra. I pastored in Alhambra. And uh, I asked a fellow who had, whose father had given us the church sign many years earlier to design the sign for us. He admitted he was New Age Buddhist. Okay? And... Uh, so I got talking to him about the sign. He wanted a deposit. And so we made the deposit. The sign never came. We waited and waited and waited until he told me he was bankrupt because he was taking all kinds of medications, uh, drugs, and he was actually with a yelling meditation group where you lie on the ground and you yell and yell and yell until you yell yourself out. Then he started talking to me about all the sexual relationships he had 
with the young women who were in the group. And I realized there's something in this that's so devious that leads you astray in some of these exercises. This was not the extinguishing of desire. It was merely creating legitimacy for desire. And I have never found anybody who truly has extinguished all desire. So we really don't reach that state of enlightenment other than perhaps the Buddha. When all is said and done, are you able to completely extinguish the desire or is some desire always lingering around? Then I ask the question, where did the Buddha's enlightenment come from? Was it just something he invented in his head? Or was there something that was revealed to him? Or if the Buddha himself said that he was not God, why is he sometimes worshipped as though he was God? That seems to be a dissonance there. Number 10. Be aware of the hole in the soul that drives all religions. See it up there? Say with me. Be aware of the hole in the soul that drives all religions. Buddhism is a meaningful response to that perpetual problem of the hole in the soul. And out of 25 hundred years of practice in many different forms and branches with varying customs and beliefs. It has created myths and practices that yearn for peace and tranquility that I believe can only be offered by God. Number 13, number 11. Be discriminating about the contrast between Buddhism and Christianity. I would say don't place that up front in your conversations. Let them talk about their faith. Then at some point, when the Holy Spirit tells you, you might want to do a little bit of contrast. What is the Christian response? Not to nail people, not to argue, not to hit them on the head, but just Christianity comes up with a little different formula on this. Here's 25 things that I see. Buddha came from earth seeking truth. Jesus came from heaven and declared himself to be the embodiment of truth. He was the true way of life. Number two, Buddhism tends to focus on right thinking. Christianity is more focused on right relationships with the Godhead himself. Buddhism suppresses the material. Christianity, on the other hand, is the most materialistic of all religions. Were you aware of that? The fact that God comes down in physical force as Jesus Christ, ennobling the body, that he dies and then resurrects the body, that when we die, it's not just the soul that continues but he says our bodies will be reunited again. We'll be able to recognize each other. This is one reason why Christianity is at the forefront of creating hospitals, social services, because we value the body in a way the other major religions do not. And Buddhism suppresses 
or seeks to annihilate desire. Christianity suggests that our desires are transformed and move more and more in the direction of holy love. Number five, Buddhism is primarily a philosophy. Christianity at its best is primarily a lifestyle of service. Number six, Buddhism offers nirvana. Christ offers heaven. Number seven, Buddhism sees the problem of humankind as suffering, stirred by desire. Christianity sees the problem of humankind as sin. Number eight, Buddhism involves many religious practices. Christ invites one to be a follower on a journey into the kingdom of God. It's not so much the practice as it is the way. Number nine, Buddhism gives special attention and exercise for boys and men. And I think we've got to think seriously about that. In that Christianity, at its best, ennobles women and finds roles and importance of women in his kingdom. Number 10, Buddhism calls for asceticism, that is denying yourself. Christianity appeals for simple lifestyles, that is appreciating what God has already given to you. That count your many blessings, see them one, count them one by one. Number 11, Buddhists seek cleansing by ablutions, lots of washing, physical washing. Christians appeal to the work of the Holy Spirit for inner cleansing. Number 12, Buddhists seek a state of peace. Christians seek Jesus who is the Prince of Peace. Number 13, Buddhists lack an explicit moral code. Christians start with the Ten Commandments and they seek to be moral people. Number 14, Buddhists believe in a succession of lives depending upon Dhamma and the quality of one's life without karma, within karma. Christians believe that we have only one life and then the judgment. Buddhists believe that we bear the legacy of prior lives. Christianity believes in a grace that transcends anything that's gone on in the past. And through grace, sins are forgiven and forgotten. Number 16, Buddhist monks deprive themselves of marriage. Christians, with the exception of Catholic priests and nuns, celebrate marriage. They don't see marriage as impure, which is seen otherwise in other religions. Number 17, Buddhists converse with or fear the spirits of the dead. Christians focus on the Holy Spirit who disarms all the other spirits. Number 18, Buddhism and its worship is very individualistic. You don't, for the most part, have weekly gatherings because there's no such thing as Christianity solitaire. We are all in community. But a Buddhist has their own private kind of rituals. And they go to the temple and they experience that moment of meditation, usually alone. Uh, Buddhists have little incentive for compassionate ministries. In fact, the compassionate ministry of Buddhists is prim primarily directed towards the monks and the nuns. And so 
They are the object of service and compassion. Christianity at its heart expresses itself as practical love. Number 21, Buddhism is primarily event-oriented. Christianity is primarily, primarily focused on daily living, discipleship. Number 22, Buddhism is defined by the writings and teachings of the Buddha and the sutras and the mythologies about the Buddha. Christianity is defined by the acts of God as expressed in his holy scriptures. Number 23, Buddhism believes that ultimately individual identity will be lost as a drop in the sea of nirvana, only as a soul, and will lose all distinctiveness. Christianity believes that soul and transformed body will be preserved as well as our identities. Number 24, Buddhism seeks serenity. Christianity seeks service to others. And number 25, Buddhism is a religion that encompasses primarily Southeast Asia and is adhered to by about 300 million people. Christianity has expanded to all parts of the world and is adhered to by 2.3 billion people. So you may disagree with some of these characteristics that I've given. That's okay. But as you listen intently to your neighbor, you may hear overtones of some of these themes. I believe that we're called to be witnesses not only of the biblical stories of grace, but witnesses of their stories and how they intertwine or contrast with our own stories. Treat these stories with deep respect, but see the underlying assumptions and speak that speak of their needs and interests. Number 13, be forever mindful of the hope that is offered in Christianity. See it up there? Be forever mindful of the hope that is offered in Christianity. And so I choose with my own understanding of where Christianity uh, potentially can take us. And I see in the promises of Scripture, implicit and explicit, that God wants to do a new work in our lives. And so I was on a plane several years ago and I went bananas. I started thinking all the ways in which God moves us from point A to point B. From brokenness to wholeness, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, from meaninglessness to meaning, from pollution and corruption to cleansing, from sickness to health, from darkness to light, from ignorance to knowledge, from bondage to freedom, from death to life, from emptiness to fullness, from hunger to satisfied, from hate to love. By the way, I would suggest when you're listening to people, don't just reduce the gospel from sin to salvation, hell to heaven. There are many other portals by which you can enter into people's lives. And these are some of those portals. From hate to love, from sin to righteousness, from guilt to forgiven, from tears to laughter, from conflict to peace, from mourning to gladness. Mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. From despair to hope, from ashes to beauty, 
from doubt to faith, from worldliness to holiness, from legalism to grace, from rejection to acceptance, from alienation to adoption, from weariness to rest. Do you want me to continue? I'm halfway through. From aimlessness to centeredness, from lost to found, from blind to now I see, from death to, uh, from defeat to victory, from fear to confidence, from loneliness to fellowship, from hell to heaven, from poverty to riches, from cynicism to belief, from old to new, from curse to blessed, from getting to giving, from barrenness to fertility, from burden to release, from shame to acceptance, from superficiality to depth, from confusion to simplicity, from hypocrisy to transparency, from silence to song, from self to others, from enmity to friendship, from weakness to strength, from timidity to courage, from wandering to home, and from abandoned to rescued. And one of the assignments I've given some of my students is put scripture verses to each one of these. I would love to see these trigger words to be discussed with our friends and family with the question of how does your Buddhist or Christian faith move you from the negatives to the positives. And then the last, be thankful for the gift of Buddhism in your life. Let me set this in context. I was in Myanmar, I was teaching in Yangon several years ago, about seven years ago. And I decided I wanted to go up and explore Bagan. This is a whole area that a thousand years ago, they built 10,000 stupas, temples, religious uh, sites in the jungles. It's amazing. 2,000 of them still exist. And so I flew up there and then uh, hired a uh, horse-driven cart. And Coco was my driver. He's 21 years old. He and I built a really warm relationship. And that day was one of the most exciting days of my life of just anthropological discovery. Something I'd not known about before. That evening I said to Coco, I want us to go tomorrow down to the Irrawaddy River and catch a fishing boat, not a tourist boat, but a fishing boat and go down the river. He said, my dad has one, but I can't take my horse and cart. We're gonna have to go on motorcycles. So at 10 o'clock the next morning, we walked across the street and I got on a motorcycle. I hadn't been on one for 40 years. I didn't know the mechanics at all. I get on there and I suddenly roar out into the road. I don't know where the brakes are. I don't know how to handle any of this stuff. I try to turn it, lose control, fall underneath it. And in that moment, my leg was broken. Here I am with $140 in my pocket. Nobody accepts credit cards. I'm in shock. I've got a broken leg. Later I found out I had four breaks. Not only completely broken tibia, fibula, ankle, and foot. And uh, so I'm lying there. A crowd gathers around. They all look at me sadly. Nobody's praying. But uh, I'm praying desperately. And then I cry out, get the motorcycle off of me. And so they finally pull the motorcycle off. And I know my leg is limp. 
they pick me up and they carry me into a nearby hotel. I did not ask, uh, who's Christian here? I didn't care whether they were Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, communist, anything. I just needed help, desperate help. And they were willing to give it. They took me into one of the rooms in the hotel, laid me out there, and I had a whole string of people coming in and looking at me sadly. I was in bad shape. I tried to get on the internet, notify the people back down in Yangon and in Manila that I was in this state. I had $140 in my pocket. And uh, so I didn't know what was next. I thought this was the end of my worldly travels. Uh, eventually I cried out and I said, take me to a hospital. So they carried me out. They put me in a taxi, the hotel taxi. They went to a clinic, no x-ray equipment. They go to another clinic, no x-ray equipment. Finally, 20 kilometers away, they take me to the general hospital. They carry me inside. Coco's with me the whole time. And I sit there in a chair, and they take an x-ray. They come and show me. My bone is like this. Fortunately, it not perforated the skin. And now I waited for the orthopedic surgeon. He eventually came, laid me out on the table. Six men held me down, no anesthesia, as he tried his best to put my bones together like this. I yelped. I mean, I hung on there. Ah! 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 And then he put a hot cast on my leg up over my knee. And I was in sad condition. And my leg for the next two months was like this. Eventually, he said to me, you've got to return to the USA immediately because you've got to have surgery. That's the last thing I wanted to hear. USA is a long ways away. I don't know about insurance, Medicare, or anything else. It's the middle of winter, December. I don't want to go to America. Furthermore, I had to preach the next day in Yangon. And so I preached sitting down with my leg up like this. And then on Monday, I had to teach for a week. And then I had to fly by myself through Bangkok making my way back to Manila. And there, my students picked me up. They put me in a hotel room, and I taught in that hotel room. Uh, by the way, on the way back from the hospital, uh, well, I didn't, I, I skipped the story here. Eventually, the doctor wrote out the bill. And for the medicines the x-ray, the cast, emergency treatment, $100. I handed him gladly the $100 that I had. I had $40 left over. And uh, on the way back, I said, I've got to have a crutch. Coco stopped the car, went inside, found that there was one set of crutches for $20. And so he brought it on out. My life for the next two months was going to be on crutches. And so by the time I got back to Manila, 
I was again teaching. And by the time I finished all of my teaching assignments, too late for surgery. We're going to have to rely on natural healing. Well, I was kind of glad about that. And uh, they did another x-ray. How much was that x-ray, by the way? $20. That was the total cost, medical cost, of a broken leg in four places. $140. Three months later, I was back in Pakistan teaching with no cast, walking almost normally. I praise God for the remarkable healing that he gave to me. Three years later, I decided, you know, I've got to go back to Myanmar and thank that whole procession of people who are God's angels to me in a time of my own desperation. And so I bought my own ticket. I flew off to Yangon, got on the same bus, made my way to Bagan, and walked into the hotel, same hotel. The fellow wanted to know what room I wanted. I said, I don't need a room. I'm just here to say thank you to the administration. Oh, we're under new management. We're under Italian management now. Uh, I don't think anybody's around. As he's saying that, a fellow walks in from outside. He's one of their employees. I remember you. I'm one of those that carried you in from the road. I ran over with tears in my eyes. I hugged him. I said, thank you. You were God's angel for me. Thank you, thank you. Here's my testimony. By the way, I'd written out my testimony on six pages and made 100 copies of it. And I started passing it out. A few minutes later, and by the way, we took pictures together. And then uh, a few minutes later, a lady came down the corridor from the rooms down there. I remember you. You were in 2A. I brought you food that day. I said I was never charged anything by the hotel. No, we couldn't charge you. You were an emergency case. I said I'd like to pay. No, 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 no. We don't accept your funds whatsoever. And so, again, hugged her, took pictures, and uh, gave her my testimony. By now, the tourists had all come around to hear my story. I'm passing out my testimony of God's miracle done in my life all around. And I don't know how far or what impact those testimonies had, but I was trying my best to let God be honored for the work that he'd done in my life. And then I said, I want to go to the hospital. By the way, I would like to see Coco. He'd stuck with me through the whole thing. Oh, no. He's out of town. We can't get him. Furthermore, he no longer has his horse. His horse died, and he's back to fishing with his dad. I want to see Coco. Oh, they tried and tried. Nobody get a hold of him. He was out of town. And so uh, uh, I went and got in the taxi. The taxi cab driver said, I'm the one that drove you to the hospital three years earlier. I said... You never charged me. Sir, let me give you a $20 bill for then. And here's another $20 bill for this. No, sir, I will never charge you. Anybody who respects us so much to come back here and just say thank you to us, I will never accept their money. 
And so he took me to the hospital. We got there, and I've got to admit, I had twinges in my leg as I'm going into the emergency ward. Sir, how can we help you? No, I'm just here because I want to say thank you to the orthopedic surgeon. Oh, he's been gone for two years down in Yangon, but two weeks ago, he came back. He's in that far room on the right-hand side in his office. Talking about God's timing in all of this. I go there. I knock on the door. I walk in. Sir, do you remember me? Of course I remember you. You're the guy that fell under the motorcycle. Uh, how did the surgery go? I never had surgery. I told you, you had to have surgery. I want to see you walk. And so I paced in front of him like this. You're not even limping. How much pain do you have in your leg? I don't have any pain. Can I take an x-ray? He took the x-ray. He looked at it. Perfect alignment. I said, my God has healed me. But he used you to be the agent, the angel, to help save and preserve my life and my ministry. I'm back here to thank you. He said, well, let me just tell you one thing. Where you broke your leg, it's stronger now than it ever was because of the bone that's formed around it. And so I gave him a copy of my testimony. He stood there, he read the whole thing. He uh, acknowledged the whole thing as truthful. And then uh, he said to me, you're the first foreigner ever to come back and say thank you. And I thought to myself about the Bible. The uh, leper of 10 that came back to say thank you to Jesus. And I realized there are people who come into our lives and they, some of them do small things and some of them do big things for us. But words of thank you and appreciation change the whole tenor of relationships. You understand? Or the words, sorry. Or the words, may I help you. Open up all kinds of possibilities. And I think documenting what God has done in our lives, leave that story with them. And God can use all of that for his glory. And so I want to close and just say, as you encounter people, friends, neighbors, family members, and treat them as Christ would treat them, uh, continue to be prayerful about them, about their needs, about their desires. That God doesn't eliminate their desires, but makes their desires holy desires. One last point, I didn't share this in the last. The next day, I went down to the market near the river. And suddenly, on a motorcycle, appears Coco. He borrowed the motorcycle. He'd heard I was in town. And he pulls up beside me. And we hug and we hug. And I said, I want you to know the end of the story. The last time you saw me, you saw me as a broken person. But I want to tell you, God has made me whole. I spent the next two days. We went down the Irrawaddy River in a fishing boat. 
I gave him money to buy another horse. And I took him out to eat. And I prayed with him again and again and again. I don't know if that made him a Christian or not. But I had the satisfaction that somewhere God had placed me in his life at a point of his disappointment to be a massive encouragement out of what he had done for me. So the thank yous of our lives can be tremendously evangelistic and helpful. I hope these stories have shared you, have helped you. Uh, I, I want to close with just two quotations. Uh, I'm a person who looks for trouble. I was in, in uh, Nepal on April the 25th. Uh, 2015, preaching on the Saturday morning on the third floor of an apartment complex when the massive 7.9 earthquake devastated that nation. I almost lost control and stumbled out of there and we all stumbled out. Nobody was injured. The next building came crashing down. We met outside and all of a sudden, what I thought was going to be lectures ended up being compassionate ministries for people who were going through massive suffering. Three weeks later, I had a sense of peace. God had brought me there for a purpose, and I was going to rest for three days. And uh, so I moved into the only hotel that was still functioning. And... I got a message from my brother. Mom has just died, 97 years old. I had to catch five flights to get back home. But as I'm walking out of my room, on the wall in front of me was this Buddhist quotation. Our life is fragile and it's passing like a lamp, running out of fuel. We must make the most of its light while we have it. I think a Christian can say that. We have only one life. And the amount of fuel that's being burned on my lamp is far less than what it was last time I was here. Or when I was in Nepal. Or when I was in Myanmar. The light is getting smaller and smaller. I want to keep it burning as long as I can because we need light and I want to share it. And I want to share it whether it's Buddhists, Hindus. And so here I am going to Bhutan in two months, the country which is the most Buddhist nation in the world, going underground, not underground, but ministering underground uh, to people who are interested in uh, learning about the gospel. So pray with me about it. I have a team of four men that are going with me. It's going to be extraordinary. We're going to spend 17 days in that part of the world. And this may be one of the last trips of that nature that I take. But you've been a great audience. and You've listened well and thank you. And if you want my, the particulars of what this is all about, ask somebody who runs whatever goes on here. 
and see if you can get a copy of it. Or you can get my email and I can send it to you. And I do have these books back there if you're interested. Let's pray together.